uh, it comes, uh, comes to mind that it might be good to take a pause for a moment and kind of reflect on and review where we've come from to get us to the place where we are now. And way back at the very beginning of our series, the very first message we talked about in a message entitled The Unnecessary Parable, how the Word of God is difficult for some people to understand, not because it actually is difficult to understand, but because the application is challenging the life. And the Word of God is designed through the power of the Holy Spirit to do three things. Number one, it's going to convince you of the truth in your mind then convict you in the heart that you need to respond. And if you do respond, by God's grace, it'll convert your soul and make you a new man or woman in Jesus Christ. Which the whole point of what we're doing here is not merely an academic pursuit or an intellectual study. Though hopefully it is intellectually stimulating, academically challenging, and all of those things. Primary purpose of studying the Word of God is to learn so that we can be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and experience genuine restoration, which is why we're here. Then we looked and took several, several meetings in a row to take a look at the whole problem in the universe, the problem of evil, and how did it begin, what is God doing about it, and will it happen soon, and most importantly, what is our role in it? And we saw that God did not begin evil. He created a perfect being who chose to rebel. And instead of squishing him immediately, which is what we would probably logically want to see have happen, God understood that though he would kill the rebel without having everyone else see it in a transparent process of due diligence, then while you would destroy the rebel, you wouldn't actually hurt. You'd actually expand the rebellion. So, casting Satan out of heaven, he comes to the earth and spreads the same lies that he was spreading up here. This had spread up there, he spread down here, to the point that Jesus Christ had to come and live out the truth. And we looked at a message and talked about how if someone were to ever call you a liar, what's the thing you can't say in defense of yourself? No, I'm not. You know why? Because that's what a liar would say. And at some point, the, the, the... Things that the lies, the falsehoods that Satan had been smearing about God in heaven and on earth had to be shown to be false. And it was Jesus Christ who came and lived out every detail of God's law to show what heaven really looks like, what God's character truly is. And on Calvary's cross, praise the Lord, Jesus won and Satan was defeated, casting him out of the sympathies of those who had known him in heaven. Now, in step three of that four-step process, we are now, by God's grace, being transformed back into the image that God created us to be so that we too can have no more sympathy for Satan and his schemes and his temptations and his deceptions to say, I want to be God's 100%. I want to be a Christian by conviction, not just by convenience. I want to be sincerely His, signed, sealed, and delivered. Jesus will come again, and I believe soon and very soon. And after that, Satan will be destroyed once the entire universe, righteous and wicked, have an opportunity to see how God has handled this issue. And every tongue and every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have an important role to play, not in earning our way to heaven, of course, 
but by God's power in our lives to live a reflective image of him and demonstrate that what God can do in humanity is a reality. That we're not just saved on paper, but we too, by his power, can be made into citizens of heaven. But now that we're here, which gets us now to week two, what do we do? Do we just sit around and say, oh good, now I'm a citizen of heaven, and I just wait for Jesus to come? No, Christ in his word says, occupy till I come. We need to have a part in his work on the earth. And thus we looked at a message entitled The Ministry of Angels to see how God operates heaven. And most of the things God does, he doesn't do personally, but he sends his angel messengers to be ministers. And then Christ prayed that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thus Jesus, when he came, didn't just destroy the works of the devil, though I'm glad he did, and didn't just die as our sacrifice, though I'm certainly glad that he did. He also modeled what ministry should look like. And it was not simply doing the work, but it was raising up workers. He called his disciples and said, I will make you, what? Fishers of men. They were signing up for a training course when they followed Jesus. And everything that he did, he had his eye on the horizon of in his place, a church being raised up in his name after his departure. And that's where we pick it up tonight. We're basically going from how God operated in heaven to how Christ, and if we, the bonus material was the Old Testament Israel was modeled at the exact same pattern, if you remember that. Then when Christ came in the New Testament to be the living example of what ministry should look like, he started from day one training other workers. And now tonight we're going to see, after Jesus departed, what was the, what was the model and what did it look like when the New Testament church was founded on those principles. Message entitled, Making Members Missionaries. Now, if all of that didn't make sense, or if you've missed a night or two, that's fine. You're forgiven. But all of these messages will be posted online completely for free of charge at audioverse.org at the conclusion or after the conclusion of our meetings. I'm not exactly sure when, but it's coming. Uh, So all of the materials, audio, and notes will be available to whoever would like them free of charge through audioverse.org. So we want to make that plug. And one other plug before we get started tonight. I had mentioned this wonderful little resource called the Discipleship Handbook. And we had um, ordered some to be out here. And uh, praise the Lord, we uh, distributed them, uh, sold them, I should say, this noon meeting today. And I was pleasantly surprised, but it's a good problem to have, but we sold out in five minutes' time. They're just gone. So I, was, I had to call back my, my leadership in Michigan Conference and tell them that I am repentant in sackcloth and ashes for being of such little faith. <laughs> and, uh, but what we're going to offer tonight is the same price, which is a dramatically reduced special one time only here at Restoration 2016 price of, for both the Discipleship Handbook and the accompanying Mentor's Guide, $5 gift price, okay? So that's going to be available, but since we don't have them physically to hand out tonight, what you're going to do is after the meeting, if you're interested in this resource, come up here to the computer. Brother Reed's going to be there and he'll help you process. You'll get a, basically your name on the list and we'll get a second order out and make sure that all of those get fulfilled. Okay? So we want to make sure that no one is missing. The price is still the same, but we want to make it available. And I'm sorry for having such little faith. Next time we come, we'll bring hundreds of books. It'll be fun. 
Anyway, that's enough for all of the preliminaries. I think it's about time to dive into a study of the Word of God. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. If you would, please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful evening in Loma Linda, California. Thank you for the rain that fell. Thank you for the, for the opportunity to fellowship together. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to a study of your word, we would ask that you would fulfill the promise that you gave to lead us into all truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want you to be our teacher tonight. And we ask in preparation for the message that we hear to sharpen our minds to understand and to soften the soil of our hearts to receive the word of truth. And by your power, Lord, convert us and make us more like Jesus, both in our character and on our work for his cause. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Making Members Missionary. Let me clarify our title this evening. What we're actually going to look at is not just making members into missionaries. First, how members were formed in the early church, the early New Testament church, and then how they were further transformed into missionaries for God. It wasn't a one-step process. It was actually a development. And I believe that Jesus, in his ministry, constantly was watching for the horizon when he would depart and others would take his place here on earth. Now, if you recall... Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, was actually quite short. It was only about three and a half years long. The bulk majority of his life was just at home in the carpenter shop. And his public ministry was only three and a half years long. Which is a short stay for pretty much any pastor, really. But he was the savior of the world. He was defeating Satan at the same time. He was setting a template for what the church would be for 2,000 years. And he did it in three and a half years. How did he get that work done? Well, like we mentioned last night, he trained those disciples to be ministers whenever he left. And what we're going to see tonight, starting in the book of Acts, in fact, almost exclusively in the book of Acts, we're going to see how they took those lessons to heart and built the early church after that same model of collaborative work. Let's take a look. We're going to be studying Acts chapter 2. Then we're going to chapter 4, then we're going to chapter 6, then we're going to chapter 8. It's a very simple study. Now, if you recall in Acts chapter 1, by the way, just a little pop quiz. The book of Acts is basically a sequel to what other book of the Bible? Luke is the correct answer. Very well done. Both books written to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. That's the bonus extra credit point. Yes. Luke writes the account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke and then transitions to the church that was built in his name in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still there with his disciples and he gives them this great charge to go spread the Gospel to the world and then he's taken up into heaven and they stand there gazing into heaven. And the angel says, what are you doing here? The same Jesus will come back in the same way, but until then, you've got work to do. And that's where the church begins. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. The Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven as an indicator that Christ, who had ascended to heaven, was now accepted into the Father's presence. His sacrifice was sufficient. And now the Holy Spirit was poured out to energize and build the church of Christ here on the earth. And Peter, of course it'd be Peter, 
stands up and preaches a sermon, fiery sermon. 26 verses of it are recorded in Scripture. 13 are direct quotations from the Old Testament. 11 verses are commentary on those passages, and two are appeal. And when he makes an appeal, he doesn't play games. Look what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that Christ has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this is only 50 days after the events of Jesus' death. These are less than two months ago. These same people were the ones yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now Peter, by the way, two months ago, Peter cowered in the darkness, right? But now Peter says, the Jesus you crucified. Something's changed in Peter. He's bold now. And he preaches a message straight to the heart. Now, when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, there were still the twelve apostles. One, of course, there was a substitution, because Judas went out, and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Matthias was established in his place. But there were still twelve apostles who had shared in all of Christ's experiences, and in the upper room leading up to the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers altogether. So the church was a reasonable size, smallish, average congregation, if you will. But it was the only Christian body in the world at that point. Had about 120 members. But then this happens. The day of Pentecost comes, and what's the result? Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So in the morning, they had 120 members. By the evening, they had 3,120 members. About. Now, friends, first of all, that's a good problem to have. Wouldn't that be great if you had too many members? But it is a problem to have. What are you going to do with all these people? Well, the good thing is they kind of sorted that out in the earliest stages. Watch what happens now. And they, that is those 3,000, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So notice they were not what I would call once learned, always learned Christians. They didn't just hear the message, accept it, and say, oh, that's good, now remember. I have a burden for the Seventh-day Adventist church. We have a critical end-time message. Truth about the sanctuary, the state of the dead, the second coming of Jesus, all these wonderful truths, and most people will come into the faith through a series of meetings or a set of Bible studies and learn the truth in 1983. And now they're just members. They haven't re-explored it. They haven't dug any deeper. It's just an intellectual assent to the truth, but it hasn't soaked down into the person. But these people didn't just hear the message, have a mountaintop experience, and then put their names on the book, and that was it. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They hung out together, ate together, prayed together, and studied together. It was a beautiful picture of the church. In fact, it goes on to explain, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were starting to live out those principles of heaven as soon as they were converted to the truth in Jesus Christ. 
They became self-sacrificing. They became benevolent and caring for one another. It's a beautiful picture. But I want you to point out the process very clearly here. When they had all things in common, they would sell their possessions and goods and they give the proceeds divided among all as anyone had need. So they would see a need, say, well, I have the means to help that. So they would liquidate the assets and take it over to the one in need. They would share amongst themselves directly. It was beautiful. Acts chapter 4 now. You have another powerful Holy Spirit-led experience in the early church. You've probably heard this passage before. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result? They spoke the word of God with what? Boldness. Just like it happened to Peter and the other apostles on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes in. They preach a powerful message. And the result is people are converted. The same thing now happens in Acts chapter 4. And now notice the similarities of the results. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any one of the things he possessed was his own but they had all things in common. Strikingly similar to Acts chapter 2. But I want you to notice now one critically important distinction between Acts 4 and Acts 2. Watch this now. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Do you catch the distinction? In Acts chapter 2, they saw a need and they met it. In Acts chapter 4, they saw a need and made sure that the apostles met the need. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but there is a dangerous tendency there that would flare up in Acts chapter 6. Do you notice how a middleman was added to their benevolence and their work? Instead of saying, here am I, I can help, they said, here am I, here I'm going to give it to you so you can help. Now it doesn't seem like that's a big deal, but watch what happens just two chapters later in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a what? Complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily what? Distribution. There arose a complaint. That'd be a good sermon title. In fact, I like to joke that uh, this is when they officially became a church. (laughs) Now we know we're a real fellowshipping body of believers because there arose a complaint. But what was the nature of the complaint? What was the complaint about? First of all, it was between two parties. The Hebrews, those were the Hebrew-speaking, probably living right there in Jerusalem and Judea, Jews who have converted to Christianity. And then there's the Hellenistic Jews who are just coming in from the outside, the Greek-speaking, the non-Hebrew-speaking Christian converts from Judaism. 
So they have a whole lot in common, but there's this cultural distinction there, and suspicion arises, an assumption of bias and prejudice, something's unfair. And they said, you know what? The Hebrews are being favored against the Hellenists in the daily distribution. Let me ask you a question. Who is doing the distributing? The apostles. The very beginning, the apostles were preaching the word and raising up new believers. Then they started to care for all the things the believers used to do. And now a complaint comes, and who do they expect to resolve it? The apostles. There are now thousands and thousands of believers, and they're all looking to the apostles to fix their issues. Thus we read in the very next verse, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and what? Serve tables. Now let me be clear. There is no lack of dignity nor lack of honor in doing practical ministry and distributing goods amongst the believers. In fact, it's a wonderful thing. It's a Christ-like thing. It's the right thing to do. But it wasn't the right thing for the apostles to get swept up into that work when they were given a different work. Notice what they said. If we do this, you know what's going to happen? We're going to end up leaving the Word of God and just focusing on what we would today call micromanagement. Going from preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 4, now we're just going to be like, Counting blankets and food cans, or I don't think they get in canned food, but whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They would just become managers of a little group of believers right there. And they said, this is a model that is not built for success. This is actually a disastrous thing that's starting to happen. So what do they propose? Therefore, brethren, seek out from Where? Among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They said, if we take on this model of leadership, you know what's going to happen? We're going to settle down right here in Jerusalem and hover over you and do all your thinking, all of your praying, all your sorting, all your distributing. We're just going to micromanage you instead of you doing something that you should be doing on your own. So he says, seek out from among you. You know what this is? The very first nominating committee. Not one amen, but okay. <laughs> but I'm telling you, nominating committee is a wise thing. I will stand here and defend it. I notice I did it towards the end of my time here, but still. Seek out from among you. Men of reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, who we can build out of this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They said what we need is a local solution. We need the lay members to sort this out. It doesn't take, you know, three and a half years of walking with Jesus to figure out how to distribute this stuff. You can do that. Pick good people, wise people, full of the Holy Spirit, appoint them to this work, and let us continue on doing our work. You see, there's a cooperative effort here to get 
the full-time leadership, which would be apostles, and the dedicated lay membership to work together. Because without that, they were tempted to look to the apostles, the full-time leaders, the pastor, if you will, for all of the things that they could be doing. They just weren't. One of the first miracles in the early church. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. I still haven't seen that happen in my experience yet, but I'm inspired that it is apparently possible. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then others that they have listed there, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, set them apart for this ministry. What was this result of this delegation of labor and responsibility? Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now this is key. Where? In Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. There was a tendency in the earliest formative days, weeks, months, I don't know how long it was, of the early church to go from a self-sufficiency, I see a need, I solve the need, let's get together, let's pray, let's study, to a drift towards what we would call today pastor dependency. And the apostle said, we have to stop this right here. If we adopt this model, our work will decline and the movement will halt. So they said, choose out from among yourselves. And the result, the word of God spread. Now it spread only in Jerusalem so far, That's a problem, but they've got one big problem solved. By the way, the model of lay leadership established in Acts 6 was not in any way a new idea. It was not a novel concept. It was actually just the way the Lord had always intended his people to operate. This idea of, all right, we have leadership, but we also need lay cooperation, that's not new. It's a very, very, very old concept. In fact, it goes all the way back to the children of Israel before even Mount Sinai. Now, if you recall, the children of Israel went into Egypt as a family of about 70 people. They came out of Egypt as a multitude, including the mixed multitude, of close to 2 million people. Okay? Egypt was an incubator for God's people. They blossomed like bunnies. Huge growth. And Moses was the man that God called to say, let my people go, come out, that they may worship me. And he comes to bring them to Mount Sinai, give them his law, give them the plans for the sanctuary, establish their encampment, move them on to the promised land and all the things that go with it. That's in in Exodus chapter 20. God gave them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 19, they show up at the foot of Mount Sinai and camp there. And in Exodus chapter 18, before they even get there, after the Red Sea, but before Sinai, Moses leads this gang of people to his father-in-law's house. Jethro was his name. And it's always good to get the advice of your father-in-law. Moses is a wise man. This is being recorded. (laughs) And so it was, now watch what happens. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat 
to judge the people. Now that's not like judgmental. <laughs> you are good, you are bad. No, no, no. He's helping to work through their problems, right? Set to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you were doing for the people? So one day, he watches the work for one day. And what does the work of Moses consist of? Sitting there, dealing with every difficulty in the camp. They would line up morning, noon, and night. And he would just sit there and deal with their problems over and over and over. And Jethro's just watching. And he says, what are you doing? And Moses explains. Listen, a very sincere and pious explanation. Well, the question continues. Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to the father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. I'm their leader. I'm their pastor. That's kind of my thing. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. I teach them the word of God. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Now he wasn't saying bad Moses. Moses wasn't bad. But he was operating in a bad system. He says the thing that you're doing is terrible. It's not good at all. So he has a counter. He says, how about this? Well, he explains, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Have you ever stood in a long line? You're not like, you know, breaking your back, digging a ditch. You're not really studying a deep thing. You're just mindlessly standing there waiting. And it's exhausting. And then imagine that Moses is at the teller window, you know, and just all he sees all day is more disgruntled people. It's like working in the DMV or something. He just, just all day long, next, next. No, there's a commandment about that. Next. No, there's a statute specific. No, you can't, not on the Sabbath. Next, you know, all day long. There's father in us. What are you doing? It's terrible. You're both going to wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice, he says. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. You shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Notice he wasn't just supposed to teach them, he was supposed to train them so they don't have to stand in line tomorrow. He says, yes, represent God to the people. Yes, teach them their laws, but then train them to take care of themselves and organize a structure that works that way. That's exactly what he says next. He says, moreover, you shall select from all the people. Nominating committee. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. 
Why don't you delegate some of this authority, train up some leaders, and give them some responsibility? It's going to be better for you, and it's going to be better for them. It's going to be better for everybody. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. By the way, I have to highlight this too. How small did the groups get? Tens. I don't know where we get this idea that small groups is a cool new thing. This is Exodus 18. This is part of God's original design. You have small groups, and they network and make a bigger group, and then they network, and each one has a leader, and there's a structure, probably a secretary to keep notes or something. You know, we just kind of work together. And what's the result? It will be easier for you, for they're going to bear the burden with you. You're still their leader. You're the full-time guy. They might have a job, but they can do part of this burden and delegate to the people. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all these people will also go to their place. How? In peace. I'm guessing after you left the Moses DMV line, you were not very restful or happy. You're just like, ah, I survived. But he said, what you can do to get that, to fix it, is put them to work. Train them, equip them, teach them what they need to know, and then give them responsibility. Some over little groups, some over a little bit bigger, but develop a structure that would work. This is exactly what we saw last night. I'm just going to remind you of it. This right here is exactly why I believe Jesus did the feeding of the 5,000 the way he did it. Remember, there were 5,000 besides women and children, so it's probably closer to 10,000. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And thus it was that God wanted to train them. He's like, what are you guys going to do when all of a sudden you've got thousands of people to deal with? Everything Jesus Christ did with his disciples was with an eye to train them to bear burdens in his place after his departure. They were going to be building a church in his name, and he used this as a training opportunity for what was going to happen later on in the early church. You give them something to eat. And so what did he command them to do? He commanded them to make them all sit down in groups of hundreds and in fifties on the green grass. So they sat down in what? Ranks. They had leaders and small groups and a little bit bigger groups, all for the organization so that the bread could be given easily and efficiently and every person would have a hand in the work. Now the picture I shared with you last night, the picture that I've always had of the feeding of the 5,000 was Jesus did the miracle, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples just ran around like chickens with their head cut off, doling out bread to everybody. Man, I got 5,000 people to reach, you know? That's like hundreds for you, hundreds for you. And if there's 10,000, what if the number were 12,000? That's 1,000 for each disciple. But that's not how it was. They got an order, a structure, a system in place so that when the miracle happens, 
there was a model that could get the work done efficiently and effectively. And everybody was fed, but very few people ever came in contact with Jesus or his disciples. But they were still fed. Thus the contention that the Lord's training of the disciples in Mark 6 was to pair them to organize the church in Acts 6. Mark 6, I believe, exists to set up Acts 6. To get in their minds, I'm guessing as soon as they saw thousands of people complaining about distribution of stuff, they're like, where have we seen this before? Yeah, you remember that one time? They're like, oh, he was brilliant. Let's organize them. Let's have them sit down in groups. (laughs) And set them over them. Now, Let's move forward. We said the work was not complete in Acts 6, but they did accomplish something. The organization of Acts 6 made self-sufficient members, which is good. It got them past pastor dependency or apostle dependency. They could distribute. They could take care of their own services and needs. But that still wasn't enough because all it did was make the church grow right there in Jerusalem there was still one more hurdle to cross to turn members now into missionaries, which is where Acts chapter 8 comes in, where the organization of Acts 6 made self-sufficient members, the persecution of Acts 8 made self-sacrificing missionaries. We continue now in Acts chapter 8. Now, of course, you remember Acts chapter 6, one of those seven that were set apart was a guy by the name of Stephen. In fact, the very first one mentioned. A man full of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 7, by the way, Stephen lived one more chapter. He lived to Acts chapter 7 when he gave a phenomenal spirit-led defense of the Christian faith before the Sanhedrin leaders and he paid for it with his life. I'll just take a quick aside here. In our churches, we need to expect more out of our leaders and out of our, even our lay leaders than just opening the doors and minding the tent. It just, we should be soul winners. We should can be convicted, converted preachers for Jesus Christ, even if we're lay members. Stephen gave his life as a lay member and he was the first Christian martyr. There's an example for us. But the result of that persecution, the result of that slaying of Stephen opened up a box of persecution. Which, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, before Jesus left, he explained to his disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, yes, and where? Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Basically saying, yes, the work will start here in Jerusalem, but if it just stays in Jerusalem, that's a problem. So what they had up to Acts 6 now were self-sufficient members of the church in Jerusalem, but the church wasn't supposed to stay in Jerusalem. So how do we get these now good members out the door to become good missionaries? Persecution. Look what happened in Acts chapter 8. At that time, that is the time of Stephen's persecution and uh, martyrdom. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? 
Judea, and Samaria. Except the apostles. Who were the only people who stayed behind when the persecution broke out in Acts chapter 8? The apostles. So when it says they were all scattered, it's not talking about Peter, James, and John. It's talking about all those guys we don't know their names. The lay members were all scattered and squished out to all Judea and Samaria. And notice what the Bible says about them. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere waiting for the apostles to catch up. Is that what it says? No. They went everywhere and they found, man, there's a whole ton of people out here who have never heard of the reasons for our faith. And the apostles are back in truth. What shall we do? Preach. Well, what if I don't get a paycheck? Preach. What if I'm not recognized with an office? Preach. What if the disciples? Preach. They force all of a sudden surround. Can you imagine what it, how, how fun it must have been part of that early Jerusalem church that was growing by hundreds and thousands right there? It was the very first mega church in all the world. And it's exciting. Woohoo! We're doing great. But you know, there's a danger in being part of a thing that's so big is that you forget that there's a whole world out there that doesn't have what you have. That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. Commenting on this from that great inspired commentary, Acts of the Apostles, we read this. The persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem resulted in giving a great impetus to the work of the gospel. Success had attended their ministry of the word in that place, and there was danger that the disciples, and again, of course, that's the lay member disciples, would linger there too long, unmindful of the Savior's commission to go to all the world. They might just get really comfortable there and satisfied and settle down and become really good members but never actually make it to becoming missionaries. Is it possible, friends, to be part of a very large Christian community, a big Adventist ghetto or something, and be so ensconced with people of your own faith that you never really realize that there's others out there who don't have what you have. Hypothetically speaking, of course. Notice this. Forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by what? Aggressive service. Friends, if you're struggling in your Christian life or if you have some apathy in your walk with Jesus... The cure for spiritual apathy is spiritual activity. Go help somebody. Go share what you have. Just review the most basic. Offer to give a Bible study to somebody and say, would you like to walk through the word of God with me? Trust me, I need this just as much as you do. Forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service, they began to think that they had no work so important is that of shielding the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the enemy. Friends, isn't that exactly what happened to the Old Testament church in Jerusalem? We're the chosen people. We have this. We have this message. And instead of sharing it, 
They put a wall around it. We better keep it right here. Keep it nice, clean, and pure, which it should be clean and pure, but it gets moldy if it's not spread out. See what I'm saying? And there was a danger that they were going to replicate in the New Testament the errors that had happened in the Old Testament. Instead of educating the new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, I wouldn't be great if every new convert had to go through a course about how to share what they just learned. Yes, it would. <laughs> they were, here's that word again, danger of taking a course that would lead all to be satisfied with what had been accomplished. When you see that the church is good and you say, well, that's good enough, that's a problem. Thus, to scatter his representatives abroad where they could work for others, God permitted persecution to come upon them. Driven from Jerusalem, the believers went everywhere preaching the word. I have a special place in my heart, and I'm going to explain this. We've only got a couple days left, but I've been in ministry now for over 15 years. And in the last couple of years, I've been seriously struggling to actually figure out what my job is. And it's a study of the Word of God that has helped me come to some of the conclusions I found out. And I'm not going to share it all with you right now. I want to give you some reason to come back. But I'm absolutely convicted that there needs to be a greater delegation of responsibility and a cooperative effort between the full-time leadership and the dedicated lay membership that the work of God on earth will never be finished until those comprising the church membership rally together to work with the leadership. Just like God tried to get Moses and his people to do, Christ modeled in his own ministry, and the apostles set up as the model for success in the early church. I believe we're living in momentous times and that Jesus is in fact coming soon, and he has a message to get out to the world. A present truth message. And much the same as they had the message of Jesus on the cross, there's a message of Jesus in the sanctuary and Jesus soon coming that must get out to the world. And if we're simply waiting for all the pastors to preach better sermons, it's never going to happen, friends. And the good thing is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to drive the car God's already built for us. Say, Lord, I may not be a full-time worker. I may not be part of the official clergy or set apart by hands of work. I may not be paid at all. But I've received this message. And the commission, the conviction on my heart is i got to go share it with somebody else. How can I individually work for you? Not just pray that your work will go forward in a general sense. Because this is one of the things that I've noticed. Anytime here we are, send us, nobody ever goes. It needs to be here I am, send me. Show me somebody to study with. Show me somebody to work with. Show me someone who needs to see the love of Jesus and let me be that glass that they see Jesus through. Help me be more than merely a member. Lord, make me a missionary for you. 
Tomorrow when we come back, not if we come back, but when we come back, we're going to be looking at how, what process God has put in place for there to be success in soul winning, even by lay members. There's a beautiful model laid out right in Scripture, and I want to share it with you. But let me ask you a question for tonight. We've asked it every night since. Has tonight's presentation at least made sense? Was it clear? Praise God for that. If you understood it, hopefully there's conviction to do something about it. And in the next following nights, we're going to say, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? Practically speaking, how can you put me to work? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who doesn't just do everything for us but you put us to work for your glory. Lord, many of us, most of us, myself included, may not even know what to do, but we see from your word that you expect us to be your servants, your missionaries, especially in this time of Earth's history. So Lord, help us to all be convinced of the truth of this in our minds. Help us to see from the word of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Christ's ministry, the apostles' work, It was never your intention just to have one big megachurch and one worker with a hundred people watching, but Lord, that each one of us would be workers, laborers in your field. Teach us how to do that. Give us the opportunities. Give us resources. Give us the power. Give us the boldness. Give us the clarity. Give us the message. Give us all that we need, Lord. But put us to work for you. So Lord, we ask, yes, that you would keep us faithful. But more than that, Lord, make us useful for you as we look forward and hasten the soon coming of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.